Well, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. We, uh, last week, if you remember, we were in Genesis chapter 14. And if you remember that, we uh, saw Abram go rescue Lot from Keterlaomer, this king, along with the other three kings that were sided with him. And as he rescued Lot on his way home, he was met then, Abram was, by two different kings. One was the king of Sodom and the other was the king of Salem, uh, who is this man, Melchizedek. We're also told there in Genesis 14 that Melchizedek was the priest of God Most High. So he's a king and he's also a priest. And we mostly just dealt with uh, the context of Genesis 14. And what it says about Melchizedek and how he came out and met Abram and then blessed him. And if all we had was the book of Genesis, then there would be some interesting questions about this character. But they would be kind of left unanswered to us and we would just carry on. Uh, Genesis does move on and kind of leave Melchizedek there and says nothing more about him. However... We know that from later scriptures that there was more going on there than initially meets the eye when we might read Genesis 14 on its own. We know that God has infused that account with a greater significance than simply it being a story about a man who served the Lord in Salem and then went out on this one occasion and blessed Abram. Uh, It's not to take anything away from that historical account, It is important and significant in and of itself. We looked at that last time. But there's even more that's going on here. And we know this because, as I said, of what later scriptures tell us. And so in Psalm 110, there is a prophecy there that Christ would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the next time in scripture where this Melchizedek is mentioned. And then in Hebrews chapters 5 through 7, the author of Hebrews then picks up on this Psalm 110 and what it says about Melchizedek and Christ and explains this more about what it means that Christ would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so I thought it might be useful to spend a Sunday just considering this a little more because the figure of Melchizedek helps us to better understand the role of our great priest king, the Lord Jesus Christ, which in turn strengthens our faith and helps us to marvel at the wisdom of God. It will serve us the strengthening of our faith and our worship of God as we do consider this and seek to get our our minds and our hearts around this. And so we are going to look at a couple of different texts this afternoon. We will go back to Genesis 14, remind ourselves of what we saw there. We will look briefly at Psalm 110, and then we will also look at Hebrews, particularly chapter 7. But before we do that, I want to read a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 5. And I want to start here because it could be tempting for some, at least, to maybe glaze over when we start to say we're going to try to connect Melchizedek and Christ and this obscure Old Testament figure and this prophecy of David and what's going on in Hebrews, uh, some might glaze over and see this as merely as an, an academic exercise, and maybe that's for other people, but not so much for me. I've already said that 
I think these truths, they will serve your faith and your worship of God. But I want to read a few verses from Hebrews 5, which I think confirms this reality to us. So let's just start reading in verse 9. Hebrews 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, this is speaking of Christ, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So the the author of Hebrews, he wants to explain and explore this connection of Melchizedek and Christ, he raises it here, this reference to Psalm 110, that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He has much that he wants to say, uh, but it's become complicated and difficult because his audience has become dull, or that could be lazy or sluggish to hear these things. And so this is not simply, he's not simply saying this is hard because these concepts are super difficult and really academic. There are some things that might be a little difficult that way. But the reason, ultimately, he says this has become difficult and hard is because you have become lazy to hear it, is what he says. This is actually a moral issue for his audience. Uh, They're, yeah, this is a little difficult, and they're not really trying. So this is, that that phrasing there is a rebuke to, to the original audience that the writer is writing to. Verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. So the Bible here is calling this topic we're looking at today, Melchizedek, Christ, this connection, it's calling this solid food for us. And even though the original audience that Hebrews is written to, even though he says you're in need of milk and not solid food, he says that as something of a stinging rebuke to them and a correction. And then he nevertheless goes on to give them this solid food anyways by teaching them about the priesthood of Christ. I think that many people would assume that milk is the gospel and then solid food is what we then kind of go on to, meaning uh, how we live life, the law perhaps, the things that we are to be doing each day. That's solid food and that gospel is, is just milk. Certainly in chapter 6, verse 1 here, we left off in the middle of it, but he says that we should move on from the elementary doctrine of Christ, which includes things like repentance and faith, resurrection, judgment, and so on. But the solid food he's talking about is this priesthood of Christ. So what he's really saying we should do is, is not leave behind the gospel and the repentance and faith and so on, but to build upon that foundation a more solid structure. To we, we might change the analogy, say dig deeper, go deeper into these truths. It's not just leave behind Christ and now we're just going to talk about all the activity we're going to do. It's understand more fully what it is that Christ has done for his people. That's the solid food that it's talking about here in Hebrews. 
So there is nourishment then to our faith. This is solid food for us, Scripture is telling us. There is strength to be found here as we consider this connection between Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, let's turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 14, and we're going to read some of that. We won't read all of it again, but we will begin in verse 17. So Abram has gone and he has rescued Lot. He has defeated Keterlamer and the others. And it says in verse 17, After his return from the defeat of Keterlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram. By God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So again, as we noted last time, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. He is also, not only is he king, which as we just read again, he was priest of God most high, And that is, of course, talking about Yahweh, the Lord, uh, the God who had called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, Abram goes on to make that very clear in verse 22, that that's who this is a reference to. Uh, God most high is Yahweh. And Melchizedek arrives here and seems to come out of nowhere. There's no mention of him earlier. There's no mention of faithful believers that might have been in Salem prior to this. There's no mention of what his priestly duties involved exactly or how he knew how to do these things. However, his priesthood is acknowledged as genuine and legitimate in Genesis 14. And we see this by Abram and how he responds to Melchizedek by giving him a tenth of the spoils. You remember when it comes to the king of Sodom, who's a wicked, evil king, Abram handles things very differently. He really wants no part of that king. But when it comes to Melchizedek, he actually offers him a tenth of the spoils. And Melchizedek obviously knew something of Abram as he came out and met him and blessed him and blessed the God who had given Abram the victory over his enemies. And so God is, as we saw last time, fulfilling his promises toward Abram and Melchizedek praises God for this. And so he was a legitimate priest, king. He was serving God Almighty. And as a priest of sorts to Abram here, he was in some ways greater than Abram himself. And all of that seems a little bit odd when we're just reading through Genesis. I mean, who at this time is greater than Abram if we think of the promises that have been made uh, to this man? And yet here comes comes Melchizedek. And again, it's a little bit mysterious. And it raises some questions. They're not totally answered by Genesis 14. And then Genesis, just as quickly as Melchizedek comes in, he's gone, and we don't read anything more about him. Genesis carries on, carries on with Abram and his offspring and so on. And then it's many hundreds of years later, probably a thousand years, give or take, another king would come and conquer Salem or conquer Jerusalem, and occupy its throne. And of course, that man is King David. 
In a sense, we could say that David was occupying Melchizedek's throne. He would establish the throne in Jerusalem as God said he should. It's the same city that Melchizedek had served in. And God had covenanted with David and promised him that the Messiah would be from his line. You can read about that covenant and the promise God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we've gone from the promise made that the the Messiah is going to come from Abraham's offspring, uh, through Isaac, through Jacob. It's going to be from one of Jacob's 12 sons. And then it's going to be from Judah. And then uh, in, in 2 Samuel 7, it's clear it's going to be specifically from the line of David. And David prophesies about this son that would come from his line in a number of places and in a number of the Psalms. And one of those is Psalm 110. And I'll invite you to flip over to Psalm 110 and we'll read just a couple verses from there now. I have uh, preached Psalm 110 uh, previously a few years back. If you're interested, we're not going to go through all of it here. This psalm is a psalm in which David reveals to us, through inspiration of the Spirit, something of a conversation that occurs between Yahweh, the Lord, and David's master, David's son who would come, this offspring who would come from his line. So it is revealing to us a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. This is what it is talking about when it says, the Lord says to my Lord in verse 1. That's Yahweh says to Adonai, to my Adonai, my master. So if you remember uh, Jesus, when he's talking with uh, some in his, when, when Christ was uh, in his earthly ministry, some opponents of him, he asks the question, whose son is the Christ? They're like, well, it's David's son. He says, then why does he call him my Lord? Why does he call him my master? Normally, if you have a son, it would be the other way around, right? The deference is shown. The greater is the, the father, right? So if this is your offspring, the father would have greater uh, import, importance. And so it would be weird for David to call his offspring, his son, his master. And so Jesus raises that question with his opponents to try to get them to think about it, to show that, yes, it's an offspring of David according to the flesh, but it's greater than David, this son of David. And so let's read uh, verses 1 to 4 here. Uh, Psalm 110, it says, A psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In verse 4 there, God is speaking. He's swearing to this offspring of David who would come. That is, The father is speaking to the son and promising you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so this son of David who is going to come is going to be like David, a king, but also he's going to be like Melchizedek, a priest. So just as David serves as a type 
of Christ, so too Melchizedek serves as a type of Christ. Now, we're going to jump to Hebrews in just a moment and look at some significance of Christ and what it means that he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, But I want to just briefly here first consider this matter of typology. I've just said David and Melchizedek are types of Christ. I I use that language sometimes. It's it's not uncommon here uh, for us to speak uh, of this. And so I just thought it might be helpful to take a few minutes to just try to explain what, what do I mean by that? What do we mean by typology? Because whether we use that wording or not, when we talk about Melchizedek and the connection to Christ, Uh, we are considering what is known as typology. So we might as well just try to take a couple minutes here and and define this. So I've done my best to try to uh, give a definition, um, combining what a couple of others have said to hopefully have it make some sense. Um, So a type is an Old Testament reality. So that could be a person. It could be an event. It could be a pattern or an institution like uh, the, the uh, sacrificial system. So a type is an Old Testament reality that points forward to a New Testament reality by way of divinely ordained analogy and escalation. So here's what I mean. There is analogy between the Old Testament reality and the New Testament reality. That is, there's some similarity. One is like the other. But there is also escalation in that the New Testament reality is greater than the Old Testament reality. So it's not just a simple analogy, but the New Testament reality is greater. So I'll just read that again, that definition. A type is an Old Testament reality that points forward to a New Testament reality by way of divinely ordained analogy correspondence, and escalation, but the latter is greater. And these Old Testament types, they have been placed in the Scriptures by God Himself. So when we initially read about Melchizedek in Genesis 14, we're not going to see all that Hebrews is going to say initially when we read Genesis 14. But we're not reading something into Genesis 14 that's not allowed When we consider this matter of typology, we're saying and what the Bible is revealing to us is that all along God has meant to put this in place, that there are certain events and people and patterns that are foreshadowing something significant later to come. And the New Testament is looking back and revealing this to us in greater clarity. So those Old Testament types, those Old Testament realities they do have a significance in and of themselves in their original context for the people living in that day. But they also point to something greater that is yet to come. So there's, this works on two levels. There's a significance in the Old Testament and it is also pointing to a later significance to come. So let me just give another example of this to hopefully illustrate it. The Passover lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, it had its own significance for the people of Israel who were in Egypt in Exodus 12. I think we can see that very clearly. You're going to want to go ahead and slaughter this lamb and put its blood on the doorposts 
so that this angel of death will pass over your house and the firstborn in your house is not going to die. That's a, a, a significance in the context of Exodus 12 for the people in that day. Likewise, under the old covenant, that was then celebrated on a yearly occasion that had its own significance as the people would gather and remember how God brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery and into the land that he had promised and so on. And so it had its own significance under the old covenant. But it was also pointing forward to something greater that would yet come, preparing people for that day and that reality. So that when we get to the New Testament and John the Baptist is saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when Paul is later saying that our Passover lamb has been slaughtered, we say, oh, okay, this, this Christ is like that Passover lamb. There's analogy, there's some similarity there, but obviously Christ is greater, a greater Passover lamb. It's not just that if we have his blood covering us, the firstborn in our house doesn't die. That was important and significant in Exodus 12. But it's an even greater Passover lamb that if we're covered by his blood, the very judgment of God passes over us and we are safe and secure because the great Passover lamb has been slaughtered. So there is some analogy and likeness, but clearly escalation. Christ is the greater Passover lamb. So this, the, the effect of this, of, of typology, is that it helps us to understand these New Testament teachings in a much greater fullness. It is part of the way that God has been preparing people for Christ and helping us to be able to understand what it is that he is accomplishing when he came and accomplished that which he did in his earthly ministry. And it also reveals to us the wisdom of God in working out this eternal plan, that it wouldn't have been immediately obvious, even perhaps to many in, in, in the days of the Exodus, that the Passover lamb had a greater significance. But clearly in the, the, the mind of God, if you will, and in the plan of God, it obviously did. And this becomes apparent as redemptive history progresses and as Christ comes and as these New Testament writers are, are calling him the Passover lamb. And so this all then relates to the same thing is happening here, a similar thing with Melchizedek. And so in Psalm 110, verse 4, we have this oath in which God is telling the Son of God, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to look at a little of what this means then. In what way is Christ a priest after the order of Melchizedek? In what way is Melchizedek prefiguring and functioning as a type of Christ? And how does this connection help us to grasp what Christ has done for us a little better? So I want to look at five ways that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. So we we read this text earlier. We're going to jump around a little bit within chapter 7. And so I thought that's one of the reasons we read it again uh, earlier so that we could could catch it all kind of in in its flow. And now we'll jump around a little bit. But I want to look at five ways that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. 
And the first, to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, means that Christ is a non-Levitical priest. Christ is a non-Levitical priest. He's not a Levite. He's not a descendant of Aaron. Now, under the Old Covenant, the priests were Levites. They were descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. This was not a negotiable thing. You couldn't just say, you know what, I think this time around we'll have someone from Dan come and be our our priest. You were not allowed to take that position. That was not, it had to be an offspring of Aaron who was from the tribe of Levi and the other Levites that served in the temple as well with the priests. But Jesus, according to the flesh, was a descendant of David, who was from the tribe of Judah. And there was no provision in the Old Covenant for any priest to come from the line of Judah. And so to say then in the New Testament, well, Jesus is our priest, could seem to some like a problematic claim. And if you think about the book of Hebrews and writing to many who would be uh, uh, Jews, who would be Jewish Christians, you could see how they might have some difficulty with this. Why you say he's a priest, but he's not a Levite. And it seems to us, as we look at scripture, he should be a Levite if he is to be a priest. And maybe that claim might seem problematic. But as Hebrews tells us, God's intention all along has to been to bring about a greater priest who's not a Levite, but rather is from this order of Melchizedek. And so Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 are preparing us for this. So it's not like we get to uh, the New Testament and suddenly we're just kind of tossing all this uh, Old Covenant stuff and we're just going to awkwardly make Jesus a priest and just change things without warning. It's been God's plan all along. Jesus is a different class of priest. He is a high priest, though he is not from Levi. Melchizedek obviously lived before Levi. So uh, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's son, Levi. So this is Genesis 14 is, is long before Levi even exists. Melchizedek's priesthood, therefore, was before Aaron's priesthood. He was a descendant of Levi. He was a different sort of priest. It was a different order than the Levitical or Aaronic priests. And God promised that the Son, this Messiah, this Savior, would be not be a Levitical priest, but a Melchizedekian one, a different sort of priest. So uh, look with me at verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken, that's talking about Jesus, belongs to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. That is, you belong to Judah and, and no one has ever served at the Old Covenant, Old Testament altar as priest. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. 
And there's a number of things that are said in that paragraph, and we'll come back to some of them. But it's very clearly stating that Jesus was not a Levite and that this is not a problem. This should not trouble anybody because God had clearly declared that the son was to be a priest, but in a different order, namely Melchizedek. So the fact that he is from Judah is not a problem here because scripture says this in Psalm 110. So just as Melchizedek was not a Levite, but was a legitimate priest, so too the Messiah, Jesus, is not a Levitical priest, but he is a priest and it is legitimate and given by God. So he's, he's not a Levitical priest. Uh, the second thing, to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek means that Jesus is greater than the Levitical priests. So not only is he not a Levite, but he's, his priesthood is much greater than their priesthood. So uh, back up to verse 4 of chapter 7. We'll read to verse 7. It says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So obviously talking about Melchizedek. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. This paragraph very clearly tells us that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, evidenced in Genesis 14 by the fact that Abraham gave to Melchizedek the tenth, the tithe, while Melchizedek was the means by which God pronounced blessing upon Abraham. It says there, it is beyond dispute, the inferior, in this case Abraham, is blessed by the superior Melchizedek. And Hebrews says it is as though Levi, who is not yet born in Genesis 14, he's a few generations away yet from coming on the scene, but it is as though Levi, who is still, in a sense, in his father's loins, it is as if he gave a tithe to Melchizedek as well in and through Abraham. As Abraham gave this tenth, it's as if, in one sense, Levi himself is giving this tenth to Melchizedek. And the point he's making here is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, having a superior position as the priest of God Most High in Genesis 14. And therefore, he is also greater than the Levitical priests who would yet come from Abraham's line. So for Christ to be a priest after Melchizedek's order places him higher and greater than the Levitical priests, even as Melchizedek himself was greater than Abraham was. Again, Hebrews is originally written to these Jewish Christians who are being tempted to turn back to the old covenant in, in, in measure, in large part, because of the persecution they suffered they're tempted to go back, to turn back. And this kind of argument is a reminder that Christ is a priest that far surpasses Aaron and any of the Levites. And that kind of argumentation continues, and we'll see this. 
So, so the third thing. So not only being a priest after Melchizedek means that Christ is not a Levitical priest. In fact, it means he is, secondly, a greater priest than the Levites. And thirdly, to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek means that Jesus serves in a new and better covenant than the Mosaic covenant. This promise of Christ being a priest after Melchizedek means that the Mosaic covenant would have to come to completion and a new covenant would have to be established. To have a priest who is not a Levite would be a violation of the Mosaic covenant. Which means that for Christ to be a priest from a different order, then there would have to be a new covenant. There would have to be a new law. That's what he means by that phrase here in Hebrews chapter 7. There's going to have to be a shift, a change. The whole Levitical system had a purpose, but it was a limited purpose. It had a, a significance in and of itself, but it was meant to come to a conclusion at some point and give way to something that would be even greater. And the Old Testament speaks explicitly in other places like Jeremiah 31, 31 of a new covenant that would yet come and a better covenant that would come than the one that Israel was under, this Mosaic covenant. And that covenant we see here would have a priesthood, but it would not be the Levites it would rather be the Son of God, and it would be a different order of priests. So look at verse 11 again. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So again, the Levitical priesthood served a particular function, but it couldn't bring about perfection. It couldn't bring out a complete cleansing from a sinner's defilement. And so it is, God spoke of another priesthood that would yet come in Psalm 110. There's got to be something greater, a priest from the order of Melchizedek to come. Uh, verse 12, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So again, if, if, if God is talking about in Psalm 110 another day and another time when a new priest is going to come, then there's necessarily going to have to be a change in the law as well. Because under the old covenant law, it has to be a priest who is a descendant from Aaron. This is all part of why some who, who argue that in the future when Christ returns, that the, the, the Levitical system of sacrifices is going to be reestablished when Christ returns. I think it's completely wrong. That, that, that's, that's going backwards from what Hebrews is telling us here. That this was all meant to eventually cease and this greater priest would come. And this change in the law has to happen. This is also part of the grounds by which we say that God's moral law, which is on the heart of Adam at creation, we see it before Sinai, 
God's moral law continues to be enforced today. God's righteousness never changes. But these civil and ceremonial laws that are added to that as part of the old covenant, they've passed away. There's a change in the law. That's what Hebrews is saying here. A new covenant has to be established when a new priest arises. Uh, Let's continue. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Speaking of the old covenant altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses, under the old covenant, said nothing about priests. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. That's how Old Testament priests were established. Legal requirement in the law of God based on bodily descent. That's not how it was for Jesus, but rather on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment, that priests should descend from Aaron. This former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. That's Christ's priesthood, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests under the old covenant were made such without an oath, but this one, Christ, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The old covenant priesthood, he says, was weak. It was unable to perfect anyone. It did have a temporary function that was important for the life of Israel. But it has now been set aside as Christ's priesthood has become a better hope, he says, through which we actually truly draw near to God. He is the guarantor of a better covenant than the old. The old covenant priests, they died and couldn't carry on forever in their role. They had to have all kinds of different priests They could not cleanse the conscience. This all had significance, this priesthood did, for the life of Israel in the land of Canaan. But it was limited by God's own design, by him who said to the Son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You remember when Christ died, what happened to that curtain in the temple? It was torn in two from top to bottom. God tore it. Showing this system has come to its conclusion. And all that it was ultimately pointing to in its types and shadows has now come and has now occurred. The once for all sacrifice by the blood of Christ. No more need to be offering these animals on the altar. Now and evermore, including the age to come. Another priest was promised This was always the plan, who would come and who would actually cleanse, actually draw us near to God, actually save sinners to the uttermost. And he would do this not through the Mosaic Covenant, 
but through a new and better covenant that Christ has brought about in his blood. And this leads to the fourth point. To be a priest after the order of Melchizedek means Jesus holds his priesthood perpetually. He holds his priesthood forever. He never stops being a priest. It never ends. Back in verse 3 of chapter 7, we're told that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, I don't think that this is saying that Melchizedek actually had no parents, but it is saying that as far as the Genesis account goes, he just shows up and then disappears again, and we have no clue where he came from or how he got to his position or who his parents were, nor do we know who he died. It's as if he continues as a priest forever. And in this way, this is part of what makes Melchizedek a type of, of Christ. It says there he resembles the Son of God. And so that mysterious element, when we read Genesis 14, it seems a bit odd. Where does this guy come from? Where did he go afterwards? It's all part of the typology according to Hebrews chapter 7. It's as if he just is always there and always would be there serving as a priest. And this is precisely what Christ does. We don't know about Melchizedek's genealogy. And like Melchizedek, but in a greater way, Christ's priesthood is not on the basis of genealogy, like the Old Covenant Aaronic priesthood. Rather, he has attained his priest, not by physical descent, but by oath of God, this promise God makes in Psalm 110.4, and, as we read, by the power of an indestructible life, He was promised to be a priest forever, and then he rose from the dead so he can truly be a priest forever because he's indestructible. He can't die. And so unlike Melchizedek, Christ truly does live and serve as a priest forever. He is greater than that Old Testament type, Melchizedek. If you jump down to verse 23 of Hebrews 7, It says the former priests, speaking of the Levitical priests, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is the one and only high priest of the new covenant in which sinners are truly purified and reconciled to God. He not only offered himself once for all to secure that redemption, but upon rising from the dead, he now lives forever such that he is able to ever live and make intercession on behalf of those for whom he died. He offers for his people and then he rises and ascends to the Father's right hand to intercede for his people. And so as Psalm 110 says, the Father also declares to the Son, sit at my right hand. This is what Jesus is doing even now. Interceding continually. We have a forever advocate with the Father. 
if we are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he can save, and he does save to the uttermost, that is, completely and entirely, those who draw near to God through faith in him, through faith in Christ. Lastly, to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek means that the office of priest and king are united in one person. Under the Mosaic Covenant, the offices of king and priest were separated. Kingship belonged to the line of David, while priesthood to the line of Aaron. But in Melchizedek, before all of that, before David, before Aaron, in Melchizedek, those two offices were united. He was priest of God most high and king of Salem. And once again, this pictures how both of these offices would once more be united in the Messiah, the greater Melchizedek. Again, the very name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That's what the Hebrew words mean. While Salem, the place in which he ruled, means peace. So Melchizedek was both king of righteousness and king of peace. And Hebrews 7, verse 1, draws attention to this. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, Melchizedek, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Drawing out the significance of Melchizedek's name is not accidental here in Hebrews 7. The man's very name and the city over which he ruled prefigured Christ, who is the ultimate king of righteousness, and whose kingdom is the ultimate Salem, the ultimate true city of peace. For all trusting in Christ, Scripture tells us He is our righteousness. He has become to us righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us. It is in Him we become the righteousness of God. It is His righteousness that He has secured in His earthly life and obedience that is credited to us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in this righteousness that we can stand, that we are justified before God. Christ is our King of righteousness, our King of peace, and our great high priest. These offices are united in Him. So as we read at the beginning and mentioned at the start, Hebrews 5 tells us that this is all solid food. That this is here for the nourishment of your soul. And I, I hope that even as we attempt to draw these things out and understand this connection, that you can already see how that is. But I want to just, as, as we close here, draw some of this nourishment out a little bit. I think there are a lot of ways that this can encourage the soul and be helpful, but I want to draw a couple of those things out. First of all, what wonder there is here at the wisdom of God. God laid all of this out in his word for us. And he has ordained history such that when we get to Christ, we can see this unified plan of God that he has been working toward this whole time. 
That God was never flying by the seat of his pants just trying to react to things that his creatures were doing and, and trying to alter the plan as it goes. Rather, he was unfolding a very purposeful plan and he was revealing it little bit by bit. And we have later scriptures that come and give us Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on the older scriptures, telling us what God was intending by this person of Melchizedek and by this prophecy in Psalm 110. This, he has revealed his word such that this seemingly obscure or mysterious individual Melchizedek becomes a rather helpful piece of the puzzle. That which the New Testament calls the mystery of Christ. Imagine for a moment David sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, understanding having read Genesis 14 and Melchizedek, king in the same area as me, blessing Abram. And the Spirit revealing to him, however the Spirit did this, this Psalm 110. That the father says that this son is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. David reflecting on and inquiring about this fact that the Messiah, his son, would be king, but also priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. And here we are. After the son of David has come. After his dying and is rising and is ascending to the Father's right hand. We can see how it is that this has played out and how this has always been God's plan. There's nourishment here in the wisdom of God and in understanding the plan of God and his, something of his wisdom. And second, there is much to provide, provide you with confidence and assurance in this life. When you're tempted with various doubts, to whom are you going to turn? To whom will you go? Where are you going to go? Who can provide for you what Christ, your high priest, has done for you? Who can give this to you? You have a great forever high priest. There is nowhere better to turn. You have all that you need in Christ eternally. When life is hard, and all manner of trials come. Knowledge of your high priest will sustain you through it. No trial or hardship or difficulty can separate you from him. None of it can stop him from interceding on your behalf and from completing the work that he has begun in you. That doesn't take away from the real pain that trials are, but there's something here to hold on to. When sanctification is slow, and your sin is ever before you. You have an advocate with God. A great high priest. Who is your righteousness. Who saves to the uttermost. Here is faith strengthened and the soul nourished and encouraged. When the world threatens and mocks. And when the mighty of the earth rage against the Lord. Against all that seems good and holy, you remember that above all, through faith in Christ, you are a citizen of his kingdom. For your priest is also your king. And his kingdom 
is a kingdom of peace for all of its citizens. You have peace with God. You are reconciled because of the blood of Christ, because of what the, your great high priest has done for you. And your ever-living priest-king will return and establish his kingdom of peace in all of its fullness one day. Again, this is hope and encouragement in a godless age. And when the day arrives and death comes knocking, where will your comfort lie in that moment? Your earthly goods will fail you at that time. Your loved ones, though they might be gathered around you at that time, they cannot hold you back from it. They cannot stop it from coming. At that time, it is hope in Christ your great high priest and king that will sustain you. The understanding that he has offered his own perfect self, the great spotless lamb of God, to turn away God's wrath from you and from all of your sins. That he cleanses you, not in a temple made by human hands, but in the heavenly temple where it counts most and above all. And that he is your advocate to the end, committed to save to the uttermost. He is your king of righteousness, whose righteousness is yours by faith. There is nourishment here for the believing soul. Avail yourself of it. Again, it's solid food for us. And so in closing from verse 19 of chapter 6, the book of Hebrews, it says, We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, not the earthly temple, the heavenly one, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have no hope but Christ. And because we have Christ, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Father, I pray that as life's difficulties and trials, whatever they may be for every one of your people, as they wash over us and we feel the weight of it and we feel the struggle and the pain and the difficulties, we wrestle with our sin and it is a trouble to our soul. I pray that you'd help us to look up to our high priest. Father, that we would see that this has always been your plan, that the Old Testament was working toward this. And that Christ is the fulfillment of all those promises. Father, that we can be confident that you will yet keep your word for all that you have promised to those who look not to our own works, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nourish us and strengthen us with this, I pray. Father, even in this weak attempt to try to draw these truths out, Father, overcome our weaknesses by your Spirit and by the power of your Word that we might stand confident in you. Forgive us, Father, for all of our sins and weaknesses. We praise you that we do have an advocate with you and that this was your doing to send him. Father, what kindness and goodness you show to us. I pray that this would 
draw our hearts off of the things of this world that we might delight, delight to serve you, to worship you, that we might delight in all that you delight in. Father, that we would love your law and your word. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you have shown to us. We pray all of this together in Jesus' name. Amen.